With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. That is Lauren Boebert, and that might just surprise you. Many of you hearing Lauren Boebert say that she's a member of the House of Representatives to say, Mr. President, Mr. Trump, you got to tell Kevin McCarthy he doesn't have the votes. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. And believe me, yes, there's going to be some politics today. But what else would you expect on a day when the House of Representatives has now taken five votes? This is the first time in over 100 years that it's gone that far to decide on a House Speaker, and the decision is not yet made. And it doesn't appear that anything is going to get Kevin McCarthy, the odds-on favorite up till now to be House Speaker. And why? Because he's not very conservative, because he's one of those establishment uniparty Republicans that an awful lot of conservatives do not like. And as far as I'm concerned, I know that some of you are saying, why don't you just get this over with? Just vote him through. What difference does it make? No, it makes a huge difference in what legislation gets considered on Capitol Hill, what investigations get done on Capitol Hill, and which ones do not. And then Boebert went on to suggest there was somebody else who could actually do an even better job than Kevin McCarthy. Listen to what she says about Byron Donalds. Our border is wide open. Inflation is out of control. The Senate just passed $1.7 trillion without our input. So let me be clear. Our job is not to coronate the biggest fundraiser or rubber stamp the status quo or keep on going along to get along. It's to use our votes to elect a speaker who will enable us 
to get our country back on track. Now, in that, she's talking about Byron Donalds. And also, Jim Jordan has been suggested as Speaker of the House. I think either one of those would be perfectly all right. Kevin McCarthy might even be able to do the job, except that every time real conservatives have gone to this rhino establishment Republican and said, look, can we vote on the border? Can we vote on a balanced budget? Can we vote on term limits? Can we vote on some of these other really serious issues? Can we put some limits on so-called earmarks in which individual members of the Congress get to add their own little pet projects to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars? Can we hold that to a higher standard? And Kevin McCarthy says, no, I get the job as House Speaker. I'm not going to compromise on any of those things. Except the things he's saying he won't compromise on are the truly conservative points of view. Well, in any case, I wanted to get one more comment in from Boebert because this is the one that might have caught you a little bit by surprise when she talked about President Donald Trump. So let's work together. Let's stop with the campaign smears and tactics to get people to turn against us. Even having my favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off. I think it actually needs to be reversed. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. Kind of interesting here, Lauren Boebert talking about her favorite president and my favorite president as well. And by the way, what better time to mention this, my favorite president of the 21st century is gonna be on this show next week. And his son will be on the day after that. That's right, Donald J. Trump, on the Lars Larson Show, followed by Don Trump Jr. the next day. That's coming up next week. Just wanted to give you a little preview right there. But welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. Now 26 years in serving the Pacific Northwest with honestly provocative talk radio. If you want to join the conversation, even as a naysayer, 866-HEY-LARS. That's how you connect. If you're a naysayer, we put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And vote in our Twitter poll. I want you to consider this because this is the second thing I want to give you some information about. This is where a massive cryptocurrency fraud, you know it as FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, the guy who's now pleaded not guilty to the criminal fraud charges that may well send him to prison for the rest of his life, and he would richly deserve it. He ripped people off for billions of dollars. But do you know where some of that money went? It went to the Oregon Democrat Party Political Action Committee. Half a million dollars. Now, while other politicians around America have turned that money back, they understand these are ill-gotten gains. This is money from a criminal conspiracy. Whether Sam Bankman-Fried is convicted or not, there's no doubt that Americans have lost literally billions of dollars, about $2 billion directly lost through this FTX crypto fraud except the Democrat Party benefited from it. The Democrat Party of Oregon, and I've been talking about this since last year, and I, I spent an, a lot of time on it because I want you to understand, the very party that got Tina Kotek elected now as governor-elect, not yet governor of Oregon, took a half a million dollars from FTX, and they know it. And while other Democrats around America have turned that money back, and said, no, no, we don't want any connection to these ill-gotten gains. The Democrat Party of Oregon is not doing it. 
Well, as our friends at Oregon Catalyst and the Taxpayers Association of Oregon point out, the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX crypto Ponzi scheme is getting worse. The firm FTX is behind the half million dollars in donations to the Oregon Democrat Party, which steered two and a half million dollars to get Tina Kotek in as governor. And they point out there are two reasons the donation was scandalous. Number one, the donation was given in a false name, which, by the way, is a criminal act in the state of Oregon. And only after the election was its true source discovered as FTX. But there's a second reason. Americans, including not just rich Americans, I'm not one of them. I wasn't invested in FTX, so I don't have a direct dog in the fight. But there are Americans, both average Americans and wealthy Americans, who are out billions of dollars. The Ohio Teachers Fund lost their investment funds in the FTX collapse. Canadian teachers lost about $95 million. New York and Missouri public employees had their pension funds lose money on FTX as well. And as they point out, Governor-elect Tina Kotek should seriously consider returning the Democrat Party of Oregon's half million dollars in FTX ill-gotten gains because the donation is layered with so much scandal and the fact that there are almost a million customers out out there, customers of FTX, who need to get some of their money back. This is part of their retirement, including union members, including unionized teachers. Is there no amount of shame that Tina Kotek and Kate Brown are willing to undergo to hang on to that half million dollars in cash? When will they turn the money back? And frankly, as I said to you, I've been talking about this since shortly after the election in last year, right after the November election. I want some other reporters to start putting this question to Tina Kotek. Governor-elect Kotek, will you turn back the FTX dollars, the half million dollars that's supposed to go back to the people who were cheated out of it? Governor Kate Brown, will you tell your party to send the money back? And if you're a reporter who says, oh, I don't want to ask controversial questions like that, don't you think it's fair? I mean, you're constantly telling us stories about this person got ripped off or that person got ripped off. When you've got millions of Americans ripped off for billions of dollars and the Democrat Party of Oregon took some of that cash and used it to elect Tina Kotek, isn't it incumbent on you reporters to ask those people? Those two ladies won't talk to me, but they might talk to you. It's a Wednesday. It's the Lars Larson Show, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. One single judge has preserved the firearms rights of four million Oregonians. State officials, all of them gun-hating liberal Democrats like the governor and the attorney general, had planned to strip citizens of their rights on December the 8th after the passage of ballot measure 114 one month before. Late yesterday, Harney County Judge Robert Rascio extended his temporary restraining order against Measure 114 because it violates the Oregon Constitution. Now, that document seems very clear to me, even as a non-lawyer. Article 1, Section 27. The people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. The Oregon Attorney General's office, again, far-left Democrat Ellen Rosenblum, argues that 114 should close the deceptively named Charleston loophole. Well, 
The AG demands that citizens get a permit to exercise that constitutional right and a background check. And here's the key point. If the background check is delayed, no matter how long the delay, even an infinite delay, the state denies that citizen's constitutional rights. Now, you don't need a Harvard Law degree to understand that indefinitely delaying the civil rights of any citizen violates the Constitution. Judge Ratio seems to understand that, so he put the law on hold. If the Constitution lists the literally God-given rights of citizens, but a law says you only get those rights if a nameless, faceless, unelected bureaucrat grants you a permit to exercise the right, that may work in communist China, but it's a non-starter here in the United States of America, even in a far-left place like the Pacific Northwest. From Truth Social, about the fight over the House Speaker, Sam Phillips writes in, Lars, I'd love to see Carrie Lake walk through the door and throw her hat in the ring for Speaker. Yes, that would be a sight. And Karen Clark in Idana writes in, listening on the Radio Northwest Network, Lars, is it really possible that idiot Republicans would put a Democrat in as Speaker? McCarthy is better than a Democrat. Why did they think we voted for them and put them in the majority? I had to shut off the TV because my blood pressure went up, signed Karen. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Presented by Rogue Conveyors. Go Rogue. I'm going to give the grill to Antifa, which has now claimed credit. On Saturday, a Portland bank was hit with arson. An Antifa online account is now literally taking credit for that arson. Andy No had the report at the Post Millennial. They say that uh, the responsibility for setting a Bank of America on fire, the attacker says it was done as retribution for the domestic terrorism charges that were brought against militants arrested at the Antifa Autonomous Zone in Atlanta. In other words, Antifa is a, well, it's a domestic terrorist organization, and it ought to be treated that way. Our best email of the day, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com, comes in from Nikki Green, the wife of a retired police officer. Lars, first, I'm sorry about the Buffalo Bills player who was injured, but really, does he deserve so much attention? Police officers are injured or killed daily or weekly, and that's rarely mentioned on the local news. This guy makes big bucks for playing a game. A police officer puts his life on the line every single day for people who don't even care until they need a cop. He sure doesn't make the money a ball player does. And there are rodeo people. They get seriously hurt by providing entertainment and nothing makes the news. Happily, there's the Justin Sports Medicine team to take care of them. But police officers don't make the big money. And believe me, the insurance coverage isn't that wonderful. The Bills player already has a GoFundMe account with huge amounts of money in it. The police officer and his family, they don't exist outside of our own law enforcement family. Thanks for letting me blow. Nikki Green, wife of a retired officer. Now. I want to go to a political matter that has some connection to what's going on on Capitol Hill at this moment. Mike Erickson joins me, who I believe was cheated in his election to Congress by his opponent, Andreas Salinas, who lied about him, uh, talked about drug charges brought against him, a number of lies. She was called on those lies before the election by the district attorney and others and by the Erickson campaign, who said, look, you're lying. These are lies. They're provably untrue. The DA says they're untrue. Will you take those lies off your campaign commercial? She didn't. And as a result, she squeaked out a win. Mike, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Lars. Pleasure to be here. Right now, you're at the middle of a a lawsuit in which you've said that Andrea Salinas lied about you, defamed you, and a judge has said this lawsuit 
has enough in it that the plaintiff, that's you, is likely to prevail, so he's letting the case go forward, but it hasn't been decided yet. While it's still being decided, should Andrea Salinas be seated as a member of the United States Congress? Well, Ms. Salinas crossed this line of the threshold of, um, I think, violating the Oregon laws that basically says you, you can't blatantly and knowingly put TV ads up on that you know are untrue. And she did that for almost a month, um, basically lying about me and some the character issues there. And I just think that I'm glad that the judges ruled in our favor. And she appealed the case. A lot of people don't know that. She appealed it. We're now waiting for the, the appellate court to make a decision. So uh, we're optimistic we're going to win that case. Um, but me personally, I don't think she should be seated. I think anybody who showed, that we showed in court that um, she lied in the campaign, and, you know, and the Oregon law is pretty clear. If you knowingly lie to get elected, you should not be seated or the seat should be vacated. And I, I think she crossed that line. She won by a narrow percent. If just 1% of the voters had not voted for her and voted for me, we would have won the election. And I think that her lies on TV um, absolutely affected the election. Is it possible that Oregon's lone conservative, well, not lone conservative, there's, uh, there, there's uh, uh, Ms. Dorima Chavez, uh, who's, who's also a member, but, but she won't be a member until she's sworn in. But Cliff Bentz, who's a member, he could actually stand up and move that the House leadership not seat her, couldn't he? Yeah, he could. Uh, any member of Congress can make that motion. Um, that's not my, um, I'm not back there. I can't make that decision, but any member of Congress can do that. So they could ask that she not be seated. And then in, uh, I don't know how long this appeal to the Court of Appeals is going to take, but once the case is decided, if, for example, if the judge who said you're likely to prevail in this case, if the, the case is decided in her favor and she wins, then the Congress could seat her. But if they seat her when there's still this cloud hanging over her, is that the right thing to do? No, I, I think that the, uh, the, the legal process should run its course the voters don't want someone back there in Washington, D.C., representing them who knowingly lied to get elected. I just think that's wrong, and I think the legal process is going to prove that she did lie, and she's probably going to be found guilty in court. I mean, the judge absolutely ruled in our favor. She tried to get the case dismissed, and they said, no, there's enough facts here against you that we're going to move forward. Well, we won the first um, trial there, and she appealed it. So now we're waiting for the, um, the appellate court to make its decision and, and hopefully we'll get our, our second chance and prove beyond a doubt that she was guilty. Let's hope so. By the way, just for people who are wondering, uh, 20, 25, 25 years ago, I argued that Wester Cooley, a Republican member of Congress from Oregon, should lose his seat. And eventually he did because he lied to the public. He lied about his voter registration. He lied about his marriage. He lied about a lot of things. And in the end, he finally gave up his seat. But that was a long, hard fight. It's a Wednesday. It's the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a pleasure to be with you. And yes, we're watching what's going on on Capitol Hill. They're now on nomination number six of Kevin McCarthy for House Speaker. Uh, when he gets another 15 nominations, he gets into Susan Lucci territory, which is you know kind of record territory. He has to get to 133 to beat the record that was, be uh, that was actually set back in the 1850s for a record number of nominations and votes without producing a House Speaker. So we'll keep an eye on it for you. But at this point, it's a bit like watching paint dry. In the meantime, much more interesting, my friend Nigel Jake was the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter from Willamette Week. I don't know if he ever gets tired of hearing that. I wouldn't if I were a Pulitzer Prize winner, but uh, I'm glad to give him his accolades for the great stories he's done. Nigel, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Lars. Happy New Year. 
Happy New Year to you as well. I, I, you've written a great story about the subject of getting Portland back on track. We could easily apply the same kind of question to Seattle. What will it take to get the, the big cities of the Northwest back on track? And I'm wondering, I'm going to be a bit skeptical about this because I suspect that the folks in charge in both cities are not willing to take the kind of bold moves that it would take to actually move us back to somewhere closer to normal. Well, it's a little frustrating. You know, uh, if you remember back in 2015, our city council declared a uh, housing emergency. And one of the many interesting statistics in today's paper is that only about 12 percent of the city of Portland is zoned for multifamily housing. I mean, the way you get out of a housing emergency is build a lot of uh, additional new multifamily housing. And, And the fact that we haven't taken that relatively basic step. It would be very controversial. Neighborhood associations would push back, but to zone more of the city for uh, multifamily housing is kind of astonishing. Well, so I agree. Of, I agree. I think it's assume... going to take bold, courageous decisions by our elected officials, and we haven't seen them yet. Sorry about that, Nigel, but does that assume that that's what people want? Because, you know, when the private sector produces products, they produce what the marketplace wants. If they don't, they end up with a lot of unsold inventory. When government makes decisions about, we'll decide what the people want, I never see that work out well. If they want to rezone some neighborhoods, the, the second problem with that is what happens when you go to a neighborhood that's been a single-family neighborhood, in other words, single-family homes, and you say, we're going to drop a big apartment complex in the middle of a neighborhood, uh, and you hurt those people. Well, you know, I think if you, you've been to New York, I'm sure you've been to San Francisco, you see that the, the development pattern in the city is that as more people come than there are single-family housing uh, opportunities, you inevitably move to multifamily. And what we see in Portland, I mean, if there's one number that matters more than any other number in that package, it's that we have the lowest, by far the lowest, rental vacancy rate uh, among peer cities, less than 2%. And so to me, yeah, yeah, you're right. We should listen to what the market wants. And what that vacancy rate number shows us is the market wants a lot more rental uh, properties. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you there. But then then you have to be really bold because you know what I think the cities, both Seattle and Portland, have done? They've said, hey, if you're a landlord, screw you. You can't kick tenants out for being bad tenants. You can't kick tenants out without paying them a pile of money. You can't insist that they pay the rent. You can't, you can't, you can't, with no obligation on the tenants at all. Now, the vast majority of tenants are good tenants, and they pay their rent on time, and they're well-behaved. But when you put all those limits on and then say to the people who build apartment buildings, hey, would you like to come to this place? We're going to limit everything you do. We're going to tell you how to run your operation. We're going to do things that are demonstrably damaging to most of your tenants, but benefiting the worst of your tenants. Would you like to build some apartments here? I can see a lot of developers, given Portland and Seattle, the big middle finger saying, I'm not interested in building in a place like that. You've made it impossible to be a landlord. I, look, I agree with you on that. I think that we have taken uh, policy decisions in the last three or four years in the city of Portland that display uh, an ignorance of basic economics. What we have is a supply problem. We don't have enough places for people to live, yet we've passed a number of policies that make it more expensive to build new housing, and we haven't passed enough policies that would Uh, provide developers incentives or make it easier for them or make it quicker or cheaper for them to build the housing that people clearly need. So uh, you and I agree on that. I think our policy has 
probably been well-intentioned, but it has defeated the goal of creating uh, the, the housing that the market clearly needs. Now, I'm talking to Nigel Jacobs. Wweek.com is where you find the story. Now, you've got, a, as you say, a baker's dozen of 13 different ideas, and some of them are kind of radical. So let's jump out of housing. Let cops smoke weed. Will you explain that one? I understand the background to it, but I want the audience to understand why you'd say let's let the cops smoke weed and obviously not on duty, right? Sure. No, not on duty. Well, uh, a couple of things. The uh, city of Portland has had a very difficult time uh, att- attracting and retaining police officers. It's hard to recruit them. It takes 18 months to train them. A lot of the people who would like to be police officers don't pass the background check. And what we've uh, been told is that part of the reason they don't is because a lot of people consume cannabis, marijuana, weed, and some form. Now, you know, Oregon voters long ago uh, decided that cannabis used for recreational purposes should be legal. It's the same in many ways as drinking a beer or a shot of whiskey, and cops are allowed to do both of those things when they're off duty. It it makes no sense at all that we restrict the number of people who would like to be police officers uh, by putting this artificial uh, drug testing um, uh, rule in place. You know, we, we changed the rule when uh, cannabis was illegal, it made sense for cops not to be able to use it off-duty. Now that it's legal, it makes no sense. All right. Now, one I don't like as well, that one I, I think I could live with, Require, uh, sorry, use congestion pricing to reduce traffic and pay for transit. Now, I see this as telling all the people who've paid for all the roads and bridges and highways and everything else, the gas taxpayers and the diesel taxpayers, we're going to charge you a second time to drive on roads you've already paid for, and we're going to take the money and pump it into transit that has had declining ridership for the last couple of decades. Why, why does that make sense? Well, I believe, that not to personalize things, but I think you, have, you do live or have lived across the river in Clark County, and so you would see what we all see, which is it's very difficult at rush hour to get into Portland and then to get back out to Clark County in the evening, yep. there are more people using the roads than the roads. More people using the roads than the roads can accommodate. So, uh, what studies have shown is, if you build more roads, the traffic will expand to meet them. But if you uh, charge a little bit for people to drive, then all of a sudden people say, "Well, do I really need to make that trip?" And the point of congestion pricing is, you price you price the roads highest at rush hour, and you say to a lot of people. Let's make you really decide whether you need to go now or whether you could go later or you don't need to go at all. So I I don't know. I mean, to me, just like we talked about housing incentives, giving people incentives to think differently about how they use the roads makes a lot of sense economically. Okay, but you're not going to like it when I take that idea and throw it back on your housing idea. I know how to free up a lot of vacancy in apartments. Raise raise all rents by 20%. Guess what? You'll have lots of vacancy, won't you? Uh... I think it's different. I I mean, I I think that everybody needs a place to sleep. There's a lot of evidence that shows that, you know, most trips are one person in a 2,000 or 3,000 pound vehicle, which makes no sense at all. They they, they take those trips and I take them and you take them because it's cheap, because it costs nothing. and, And you don't think about it. If you make people think about it, you say, well, do I need to take this trip and do I need to take it at this time? I I think with well, housing, everybody needs a place. I'm, I'm going to throw the numbers back at you. When you when you raise the, all the rents by 20% to free up all those vacant apartments, you're telling everybody you need a roommate. 
Why, you don't need that entire 1,000-square-foot apartment for yourself. Lots of the world, in fact, I think in Rome and London and places like that, the average amount of space a family lives in is 800 square feet. So why don't we just tell everybody, if you're living in that apartment by yourself, you need to get a roommate. Read these dozen, uh, sorry, Baker's dozen ideas at wweek.com. Nigel Jaquist is the author. You'll find him at Willamette Week. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. I'll get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. And if you ever not wondered why in some news stories, the news media can't wait to tell you the name of the bad guy, and in others, the name takes a long time to become public. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. I'll get to one of those calls in just a moment. But I want to mention a couple of things. Keith writes in, Keith Collins, and says, Lars, nobody's talking about the older man whose face was chewed off by some crazy person. Well, I ended up talking about it on Monday of this week. It's now Wednesday. An awful lot of media had the story yesterday. Uh, the Daily Mail out of Great Britain had the story by yesterday. What happened was a 78-year-old man was physically attacked by somebody at a Max Light Rail stop in Portland, and we ran some of the tape, the audio, uh, from the 911 call in which an officer said that uh, the man had part of his face chewed off and was missing, as the officer put it, or the paramedic put it, at least one ear. So the story's out there for sure. I don't know why anybody thinks it's not been out there, but I ended up talking about it on Monday of this week. Anyway, welcome back to the program. Do you have that audio? Uh, let, let's, let's replay that audio, Dusty, if you don't mind. Five call six three caller says the suspect is still on top of the victim and there's people standing around not reacting to this. Little further description, unknown race male, gray hair, blue beanie, tan coat, red socks. I think he might be biting him now. Oh no. Half this guy's face appears to be chewed off. Copy. And five all five is for info. Our victims most likely end to be a trauma injury. Severe head trauma, possible fracture skull, missing one ear at least. Now, if anybody wonders why people don't ride mass transit in the bigger cities of the Pacific Northwest, that might be one of the reasons. Glad to have you on board. This segment of the show brought to you by NickShivers.com. For an instant offer to sell your home immediately, no showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Let's go to Henry in Bellingham, listening on the Radio Northwest Network and KGMI. Hey, Henry, what's on your mind today? Hey, Lars, thanks for taking my call. I, I need sure. your help. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, I called because I thought I was mistaken, and I thought that the Biden crime family had put out some Donald Trump trading cards. And you straightened me out and let me know that, no, in fact, uh, President Trump had done that, and yeah. those were valuable. Yeah. So I, I used my kids' Christmas money. I bought a couple of them. Yeah. Um, and now I find out they're worthless. Hmm. I don't know where you got that impression, but they're called NFTs, so they're digital trading cards. Unless you're trying to pull my leg, they sold at $99 a pop. Hold on, Henry, you were curious about this. I'm giving you the answer. Right now, I've looked okay. online to see what they're selling for today. They're selling for between $200 and $1,200 each. So how do you figure they're worthless? No. See, what he did, because apparently President Trump used some... Um, copyrighted material to make the cards and so they're not unique or one of a kind um 
Well, Henry, and all I'm I telling you is it, you right now, as an N, you know what an NFT is. If you if you claim you bought some, you know what an NFT is, right? It's a non fungible token, right? That's right. And right now, there are people yeah. offering anywhere from two hundred to about six, about a thousand to twelve hundred dollars each for those things. So I think you're just trying to pull my leg, and that's okay. I don't mind having my leg pulled. It's a little personal, but there you go. Eight six six four three nine five two seven seven. I've been warning you literally for years that the Pacific Northwest is running itself into an energy shortage. And let me give you the latest example. And it came in the form of a tip that I got. I can't give the person's name. But he said, Lars, I work at the Oregon State Penitentiary, you know, the big house in Salem. Uh, And with the recent push for clean energy, I think it's a bit ironic that one of the largest prisons in the state is running off diesel fuel for heat. Turns out he's right. He said, we have a steam boiler system. We have two large diesel fuel tanks that supply our boiler of fuel. Well, we noted a few weeks ago that animals were dying all around the prison. We've also been finding dead seagulls and birds inside the walls, as well as near the physical plant that houses the fuel. Well, now we have a huge undertaking going on. They won't tell anybody what's going on. They're removing dirt and taking it away. Men in hazmat suits are all over. Our prison literally sits on top of Mill Creek. If diesel fuel is leaking, which I think it is in my opinion, and we have a decent amount of hazmat training I got in the military, I know the contractors are freaking out. Where's the DEQ? So much for Oregon's clean energy and clean water. Thanks, current employee of OSP. I held back his name. I did my due diligence, and I reached out to the folks at DOC, some of whom apparently listened to this show. And they were nice. They weren't willing to give me an interview. But what they did tell me was, yes, the prison is right now during the wintertime being heated with diesel. They said usually they use natural gas, but they said any time it gets cold, as it did over the last few weeks, um, they are allowed, natural, Northwest Natural is allowed to cut off the supply of natural gas that would ordinarily heat those boilers that then produce the steam that heats the prison. Now, you can imagine a big, huge prison in the state capitol that's heated with uh, diesel or with natural gas takes a lot of heat to keep that place warm. So Northwest Natural apparently cut off the natural gas, which they're allowed to do, because they didn't have enough otherwise to supply the rest of residential and commercial needs in the region. Now, that one got me interested. Number one, They do use natural gas apparently most of the time, but when it gets really cold, the prison switches over to diesel. Now, remember, these are the same folks who are always telling us, we're going to cut you off from diesel and gasoline-powered cars because they're dirty. We're going to make you stop doing this because it's dirty. They're even talking about banning natural gas in your home because it's dirty. And then we find out they're heating the state prison at least part of the year with diesel fuel, And now apparently some of it has leaked and they are dealing with that leak at the Oregon State Prison. And if you wonder yourself, hey, how come I haven't seen that anywhere in the news? Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe the news isn't interested in showing the state of Oregon that preaches clean air and global warming, heating its major prison with diesel fuel. You got the Lars Larson show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. Now, yesterday, right before the end of the show, uh, I managed to get the news that the judge in eastern Oregon in Harney County, Judge Rascio, had actually decided that he would continue his temporary restraining order on an unconstitutional new law that was passed by voters by a spare majority back in November. Uh, state officials had in mind to get the thing in effect before the vote was even certified. They had planned to have it go into effect December the 8th, even though the vote wasn't going to be certified till a week later. Instead, a temporary restraining order, thank God, was slapped down to stop this unconstitutional monstrosity. It has still caused chaos in the firearms business and chaos for literally tens of thousands of Oregon citizens who wanted to only exercise both their Second Amendment rights and their right under Article 1, Section 27 of the state constitution, which is what was challenged before Judge Rascio in Harney County. Well, yesterday, he decided, I'm going to continue the temporary restraining order. And I thought the perfect person to talk to about this is Kevin Sterrett, executive director of the Oregon Firearms Federation. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Lars. I characterized this yesterday and today as a judge has now saved citizens from being stripped of their gun rights, at least for a time. Uh, how do you read yesterday's decision and what does it actually do? Well, yesterday's decision was, was only to one little part of it. So he had had a temporary restraining order and pretty much the whole piece of garbage. But the state came back and said, look, there's a three-day safeguard that says that the police don't do their job, we're allowed to transfer the gun, and we as a state want to eliminate that. So when the state police don't conduct the background check, people waiting for guns will wait forever. And he said no to that. So that was basically what he did. That was the last piece that was being argued. And he said he wasn't going to allow the state to take away the single safeguard that, in, at least in theory, will protect people. Now, the dealers still have the option to not transfer if they want to, but it is legal if the cops don't do their job after three days have transpired that they can transfer these guns. And, of course, people like Max Bernstein and OPB and all the cartel media are saying, well, that's a loophole. Anything that allows you to exercise your rights is a loophole, when, in fact, it's a safeguard. And so that safeguard is still in effect for now. And, of course, it's very possible and I think likely that the state will come and appeal what the judge said, because any time Ellen Rosenblum has an opportunity to attack people's Second Amendment rights, she is going to exercise it. Even though it really should be her job as attorney general to stand up for people's rights. I mean, and ordinarily on other things, on skin color or gender or who you like to have sex with, she'll stand up for people's civil rights all day long, but not when it comes to uh, Article 1, Section 27 of the state constitution. 
No, I mean, she's making a really dis- concentrated effort to crush that right. And, I mean, as it is now, there's already been testimony from somebody in this case in Harney County who used to work for the state police ID unit and said, look, the culture there is to deny as many people as possible, not to find the bad guys, not to expedite, expedite things, but to see how many people we can delay and muck up. And you have no, no doubts that's the orders that have come right down from Governor Brown and her successor will be just like that. Now, i got to tell you, I'm talking to Kevin Destroyer from Oregon Firearms. People should know the background of the so-called, and it's, I think it's a deceptive name that the media and politicians have used, the Charleston loophole. This is what you're talking about, the three days. So you walk in, you want to buy a gun. Uh, they say, we'll run you through a background check. Many of them come through in a few seconds. Some of them are delayed for as long as years. And the law says, the federal law says, well, if the delay is beyond three days, the gun store is allowed to deliver the gun to you anyway. They did that with a guy named Dylan Roof because the DOJ, the now Joe Biden DOJ, uh, goofed up. Except back then, it was the it was actually the Trump DOJ. Uh, no, it was it was actually still uh, the Obama. Obama. Wasn't it? it was the Obama DOJ. Yeah, they screwed up because they called the wrong police department to check on the background of Dylan Roof, and that police department said we don't have any record of this guy. Well, so but it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered, Lars, because the guy had no convictions that would have barred well, him from having a gun. The well, fact is, the gun was stolen. Except and he had other thing. guns in the house, so nothing would have changed. Yeah, nothing would have changed, but but just so people understand the background of that, and Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, when I've, I've filled out a 4473 form before, it says, are you a habitual user of illegal drugs? And I say no, because I'm not. Um, but in his case, he had actually admitted to the cops, yes, I'm a user of illegal drugs. And as I've read the legal analysis, they could the, 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 the uh, NICS system could have said, hey, this guy has told the cops he's a habitual user of illegal drugs, deny the sale. And they could have done that at any point in the two months before between when he bought or got the gun in April of that year and when he murdered the people in June in Charleston. But the DOJ screwed up, and they don't want to admit it was their screw-up, not a, a fault in the law. A- am I wrong well, no, on my, any of that? Well, my, my understanding is, is that he never admitted to being a user. He was in possession of drugs at one point and was caught with them, but not the crime that he was accused of but not convicted of would still not have barred him from purchasing a firearm. But in any event, the fact is, is when he got the gun, he brought it home, his mother took it away from him. He then stole it back from her, but the family already owned guns. So, yes, the Department of Justice screwed up, law enforcement screwed up, everybody screwed up. Certainly shouldn't have had one, but nothing in this measure would have changed it. And so when the talking heads from the media say, oh, this is the, the loophole that allowed him to go murder those people, well, there's still thousands and thousands of people who have nothing in their background who are being denied. So the fact is the background check system does not work. It denies good people. It does not deny bad people. There's 37,000 people in the state waiting in line to pick up the property they paid for and own and can't have because no one's doing their job at the direction of the governor of this state. So this is on hold for now. When does it finally get decided? Does it get decided, as you said, by an appeal to, say, the Supreme Court of, of, the, of Oregon, or does it get decided when the judge in Harney County finally hears the entire case? Okay, so there's a couple of things. As you know, there's federal cases going on as well. The federal yep. One of our cases is in, in federal court along with three others. That's happening, happening simultaneously. But in both cases, what happens is the state can appeal a Harney County judge's decision and try to get the Oregon appeals court to overturn it. They probably will try to do that. No guarantee, but they will try. 
If his decision holds, then we have to go to a full trial on the constitutionality of the measure, just as we will in the federal cases. So in the federal cases, the next step for us is a temporary injunction, which will three three days of trial at enormous expense. And then after that, who knows when, another full trial on whether or not it's constitutional. Meanwhile, gun owners are paying the bills for their lawyers and the state's lawyers and the people who created this monstrosity this garbage pit that's on fire in this state, are responsible for not one dime of legal bills while and in rights the meantime, are being eviscerated. The, the other part, Kevin, the, the magazine limit, uh, that you can't possess a magazine beyond 10 rounds uh, in the state. Is that outside of your home? Is that, is that in place then? No. Every, th- every part of the measure is on hold. There's nothing that has taken effect. So if you have a standard magazine, you are not a criminal yet. And of course, arguing over the magazine size is absurd. I mean, imagine saying to people, you have the right to defend yourself, but not with 11 bullets, only with 10. It's idiotic. It is idiotic. It would be like saying, yes, Lars, you have freedom of speech, but only 500 words a day. That's what your limit <laughs> exactly. is. Anything more than that would be dangerous to people. That's Kevin Sterrett from the Oregon Firearms Federation. Kevin, thanks very much. Coming up, i got to talk about a story. It's kind of painful, not for me personally, but would you ever leave your young children alone to go out to dinner and watch them on a video camera while you go out on the town? We'll talk about that next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. I've got to talk about this story. I don't know why, but there are some stories that really get under my skin. I mean, they hit me where I live. Because uh, let me share this with you, first of all. Uh, My granddaughter is uh, not quite seven years of age. But back when she was a tiny baby, she and her mom and dad lived with Tina and I in our home for the first couple of years of her life. And I remember thinking at one point, this is a child who is never more than about 10 or 15 feet away from an adult at any point during the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 in an election year or a presidential election year. But I remember thinking we would never think of going more than literally feet away from her. And why? When she's down for a nap, uh, back in those days, uh, she would often nap for a couple of hours, and then she'd be up. But we were always right down the hall, a few feet away, and we were listening not only with a baby monitor, but also with our ears, so that if there was ever a problem, we would be right there immediately. Well, this story got me wondering, and you may want to comment on it. If you want to call and join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I may get some naysayers on this who disagree with my point of view. But if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you'd rather email, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at LarsLarsonShow and at LarsLarson.com. If you don't like Twitter, you can go to our website instead. But this involves a couple of high-level media types. And they actually make their home outside of Washington, D.C. One of them has now passed away, sadly, but I'll I'll tell you about that. Dax Tejera. Dax Tejera is a young man, uh, less than 40 years of age, and he's got a wife, and she also works in media. Uh, Dax Tejera works or worked for ABC News. In fact, he was the producer of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And his wife worked for The Washington Post or works for The Washington Post. And this does not end well. But here's what happens. Mom and dad have two small children, a two-year-old girl and a five-month-old girl. 
and they decide that they're going to go from their home in Maryland to New York City. And they're going to stay at a very exclusive members-only hotel. Apparently, they're members of the Yale Club. I'm not familiar with the Yale Club, but whatever. So they check into the hotel. They get their kids situated, the two-year-old and the five-month-old. And then they decide to go out to dinner at a steakhouse. And they put a couple of cameras. Those are cheap these days. They put a couple of cameras in the room to keep an eye on the kids while they're gone. Now, they belong to an exclusive members-only hotel. They're going to a high-end steakhouse. They both work in media jobs that likely pay very well. I don't know what they make. But they go off about 15 minutes' walk down the street in New York City. Now, mom says, I'm keeping an eye on the girls using my cell phone to monitor the camera. Now, I assume she's not sitting at dinner with her eyes glued to the screen, but probably watching out of the corner of her eye. And they sit down to dinner. They begin to have dinner at this fancy steakhouse, and right in the middle of dinner, her 37-year-old husband stands up for reasons they don't understand and starts to walk toward the door. And one of the waiters begins to follow him, asking, what's wrong, sir? And the man collapses. Now, he had a heart attack at age 37. He had a heart attack. Now, what happens? They call an ambulance to bring, you know, to resuscitate him and take him to the hospital. Sadly, I have to tell you that Dax Texjera died. Uh, His wife went with him to the hospital. So now she's not only a 15-minute walk away from the hotel room where her two-year-old and her five-month-old are bedded down for the evening, and she's watching on a cell phone. She begins to call family and friends to say, will you please go to the hotel? We don't know how long that took, uh, because somebody's got to keep an eye. Somebody's got to be there for the kids, which is what parents usually do. And uh, she calls her friends. Her friends go to the Yale Club. And the Yale Club, presented with these people they don't know, who aren't checked into the hotel, who don't have picture ID that identifies them as as guests of the hotel, says, not only are we not letting you go up to the room where there are two small children, as the friends and family members are telling them, uh, we're going to call the cops. Because if somebody left a two-year-old girl and a five-month-old girl alone in a hotel room, for a long period of time while mom and dad are out having a steak at the steakhouse, uh, we think the cops should be involved. So the cops show up. In the meantime, mom is off at the hospital, uh, and she's Veronica Tajera. Uh, She's off at the hospital with dad, who, as I said, sadly passed away. So she's already had one major loss in her life. Her husband has just died essentially in front of her. And now she's been charged with a crime. And what do you think the crime is? The crime is two counts of child endangerment. And when I saw this story at first, I thought, I don't know what's going on. We didn't have the details to know, were they just downstairs? Even that. I would ask you as a parent, I don't have any biological children. I have two great uh, stepchildren. uh, And I have this wonderful granddaughter uh, who's just coming up on age seven. But even at age seven, We wouldn't think of leaving the house and leaving Payson by herself at age seven for five minutes because you always think something like this could happen. And if you're more than just footsteps away down the hallway, are parents doing this kind of thing? And are there any parents who think it would be appropriate for mom and dad if they decide we're going to go out on the town, we're staying in a hotel, and we're going to leave these two small children incapable of caring for themselves, a two-year-old girl and a five-month-old baby. We're going to leave them in the hotel room 
We'll lock the room. We'll put cameras up. We'll keep an eye on it. But we're 15 minutes walk away in Manhattan, New York. And, uh, and at this point, when dad has this major medical malady and he's taken away in a hospital, of course, his wife, his wife could have said, listen, I, I want to be with my husband, but my two small children are back at the hotel. She decides to go with her husband. And now on top of the loss of her husband, she's being charged with a crime with two counts of child endangerment. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen with that case. She was actually visited by the NYPD after she was questioned. Uh, she was given a desk appearance ticket on charges of acting in a manner injurious to a child. And she's been ordered to show up in court on the charges at a later date. Now, I don't know what's going to happen, but it got me wondering, how often do you suppose parents do something like this? Oh, yeah, we're, we, we want to go out on the town. So we'll park the kids at a hotel. We got the money to do that. We're going to go to a steakhouse. We got the money to do that. We belong to an exclusive club. We've got all that. We don't bother to hire a babysitter. We don't say invite a friend to come, mom or dad, grandma or grandpa, to sit in the hotel room with the children and make sure they're okay and that there's an adult available. I mean, something else could have, I mean, you could have had a traffic accident. You could have had a pedestrian-involved accident. It just got me wondering, how common is it for parents to leave children this young, not 14 and 15, uh, not seven and eight, but two years old and five month old to leave them alone in a big city, in a hotel room by themselves and say, well, modern technology lets us keep an eye on them remotely. They'll be just fine. And if you were sitting on the jury in that case, when she eventually comes to trial, though I suspect she'll probably do some kind of plea and pay a fine and all that, what would you say? Would you say that she's guilty of putting her children in danger? Because I would, but maybe I'm being too tough. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I guess I really don't have a direct dog in the fight, although maybe you'd consider this. Have you ever been stalked by somebody? Now, I've had plenty of people who call the show on a regular basis. They want to tell me off or say words on the air that I can't allow them to say on the air. Uh, but my wife has been stalked, uh, and she was subject to a stalker who literally stalked us at her home. He ended up going to jail. So in that way, I guess you could say I have a dog in the fight when I talk about stalking. Well, Holly Sullivan has been working in the field of trying to help women with stalking-related and domestic uh, kinds of violence for a long, long time. She is the president of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. Ms. Sullivan, welcome back to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you on. Now, do you, ha you have a personal side to this as well as, as, well as the women you've tried to help uh, with stalking issues. Before we get to the issue of Second Amendment and concealed carry, uh, your, your personal uh, involvement with this? Um, well, ultimately, I work with a lot of women that have been through this, and I can speak from experience what I've seen with them and what I've seen them go through, um, and, you know, and, and even just coming from the, the perspective of a gun owner. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly we see this all the time. Um, I literally spoke with an individual this week that was dealing with a stalker situation. Um, so it, it, it is very prominent without question, and, and certainly there's opportunities out there for women to do something about it. And police, I, I know from going on ride-alongs, they deal with 
domestic violence situations all the time. And sometimes the police or the courts or others will tell women you should get a restraining order. You should get some kind of order of protection. You should do that. But, you know, those things are written on a piece of paper and they don't necessarily stop the bad guys. It's, it's usually bad guys, although I've covered some cases involving uh, domestic violence and attempted murder involving women as, as the bad guys. Uh, but but of all that advice that they might give to a woman who's facing that kind of threat to her life, do they usually tell her you probably ought to buy a gun? Absolutely not. So the overwhelm, I don't actually, I'll be honest, I don't know of any um, victim advocacy groups out there that interact with women at the time that they're going through a domestic situation that tell them to go and arm themselves or train themselves in any capacity, whether with a firearm or, um, you know, in any other significant method of self-defense. Um, you know, there are a couple groups out there that might say, hey, you know, you could take some very basic um protection classes, but when it comes to firearms, no, there's no groups out there that are advocating for them to get their permit to carry. And the one thing that we know is the great equalizer is a firearm, is a firearm is the one tool that will make two individuals, no matter how much they weigh or how big they are, will make them equal. Well, and in fact, it's the kind of equalizer where you don't have to actually pull the trigger or fire a bullet uh, to be able to have it work against the bad guy, do you? Absolutely not. So uh, there are absolutely instances, we hear about them all the time, where somebody has simply, um, you know, drawn their firearm, brandished their firearm in a way that said, hey, back off. And that's enough for the perpetrator to say, okay, and they do. Um, So, you know, you don't always have to escalate to that point. It simply can be um, a method to stop the situation. And that does happen all the time in this country. Would you mind telling my audience, I'm talking to Holly Sullivan, who's president of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. Tell me about the case of Julie Minogue. So um, Julie is a woman here in Connecticut. Um, she had filed for a restraining order from a former, former partner of hers. Um, and, you know, it's really a sad case. Um, you know, she did everything right. Um, she went to the police. She she filed all the documentation that she was supposed to file. Um, but ultimately, her stalker made the decision that he was going to kill her. Um, and he went into her home with an axe and, and he killed her. And no matter how many pieces of paper you file, um, at the end of the day, the police officer might be six, eight, ten minutes away. And you don't have six, eight, or ten minutes when that individual has just entered your home. Um, and I don't know if Ms. Minogue had ever filed for a permit, but what I can tell you is here in Connecticut and in many other states that are restrictive, getting a permit takes a very long time. Um, it's a minimum of a two-month wait here in Connecticut, and there is no provision for somebody who is being stalked or is in immediate need to expedite the process. Um, and that's very common in some of the tougher states. You know, it kind of makes me wonder whether or not the state lawmakers who considered putting the limits on being able to buy a gun were even presented with, you know, the the option to say, let's carve out an exception that if somebody is the subject of a protective order or restraining order, you know, that they're the victim in this case, that they should be able to get a gun quicker. Was that option even presented to the legislatures? Um, and I got to be honest, so in a lot of the legislatures where the perhaps they have a majority that is leaning the other way on gun control issues, um, a lot of the um, 
the advice that the legislators get or the groups that they hear from are not groups that are friendly to Second Amendment causes. So I can't say that they have considered it because, quite frankly, I'm not sure that they even speak to the organizations that are um, really in the front lines of of law-abiding gun ownership and what that means and and how powerful it can be. So what should we be doing? I mean, because... I would love to see law enforcement agencies who have all kinds of practical uh, experience about saying you should get locks on your house or put some more lighting outside or make sure your friends and family uh, are aware of your situation so that they can help you out. Uh, Why aren't law enforcement agencies advising these people you need to buy a pistol and you need to be prepared to protect your life because we can only be there in five or six minutes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the beginning of this conversation, and I think this is the perfect time to be having it. Um, as more and more of these situations happen, there are groups out there, and um, there are opportunities for women to learn and to train. Um, why that's not happening today, I can't tell you, but I can tell you it's something that should be happening today. And I think that this is a perfect opportunity to start spreading that message. Well, see, and that's the thing. I don't talk to police chiefs all that often, but but we ask them on the show. But when they're on, uh, that may be one of the questions I start asking them is is are you going to advise because this is one of the most common things that comes up for police is some kind of domestic dispute involving boyfriend girlfriend husband wife and and what do you tell those people and then when they list off all the things they tell them uh say well have you told them that they ought to have some kind of weapon and you know probably a gun uh that would allow you to to fend off that attacker until you can get some help and if not why not because i don't think there's a sensible answer to it no, there doesn't seem to be. And a lot of the time that directive comes from above, right? So, um, so you know, the officer is going to do what, what he's been instructed to do as far as offering what that toolkit is that's out there. What we do know um, is that violating restraining order is a nominal additional charge, right? So if somebody is already intent on committing murder, they're not particularly concerned if they might get an extra five years because they violated the restraining order. They're there to kill the individual. They've already made up their mind. They don't care that there is an additional tack on charge of, of violating a restraining order. And we also know that 90% of murderers um, who kill their domestic partners, partners have a record of violent crime. So these, you know, these are folks who are already on the radar to police departments. Um, and I would argue that the restraining order is simply ineffective. The only thing that is effective in that moment is some sort of defensive mechanism. And there's no doubt that a firearm in the hands of somebody who has been trained to use it is their best chance. Yeah, when, when Ewan DeWitt, who's the man who murdered 40-year-old Julie Minogue, when he showed up with an axe at his ex's house, uh, it wasn't because he was going to offer to chop down some trees. He was there to, to commit murder. And, and I think the only thing that probably would have stopped him was either a cop on the scene at the time or the young lady having a gun of her own. And, and you wonder whether some of the advocacy groups out there are actually advising women, look, there are lots of things you can do. This is the one that's, that's, uh, that's going to be the most likely to provide you with real protection when you actually face the threat, when it shows up on your front doorstep at 2 a.m. Holly, thanks for the work you do at the Connecticut Citizens Defense League and also the work you do with the uh, Crime Prevention Research Center. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You betcha. That's Holly Sullivan. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And yeah, we're going to take those calls in just a moment. 866-439-5277. Naysayers go right to the head of the line. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And if you care to, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. 
And thanks for listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. This segment brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the question every day at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com. Should the Oregon Democrat Party return the half million dollars it got from the FTX crypto fraud to this point, they have refused to do that. I think they should return it, and if not, explain why they should keep that. Also, the news we got today, at least several public employee unions, not in Oregon or Washington, but in uh, other parts of the country, and one of them in Canada, lost money in the FTX crypto fraud. So given that there's a bankruptcy receiver, should the Democrats in Oregon return the half million so at least some of those people who were victims of that fraud can get some of their money back? I'd love to hear the naysayer on that one. Our Twitter poll, should the Oregon Democrat Party return the half million dollars it got from the FTX crypto fraud? Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, earlier this hour, I mentioned this crazy story. Husband and wife, both relatively young, decide to go out on the town. They check into an exclusive hotel that's members only in New York City. They then put the two small kids they have, a two-year-old girl and a five-month-old girl, to bed in the hotel room, set up a couple of cameras so mom can, in theory, keep an eye on the kids from a distance from her cell phone. They then go off a 15-minute walk away in Manhattan uh, to a steakhouse, and they begin to have dinner, and then dad goes into medical distress, he has a heart attack, and actually later dies. The wife is caught between the, do I go in the, in the ambulance with my husband, who may be dying, and in fact was dying, now we know, or should I go back to the hotel and take care of my two-year-old and my five-month-old girls? And the answer is, she goes with husband, calls friends and says, can you go to this hotel and check on my kids? I thought that was absolutely outrageous. She's now been charged with, a, with two crimes. Let me go to David. Hey, David, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What should we make of all this? And are our parents really doing this kind of thing? Uh, you know, Lars, it's my understanding that it's not, it's not a very popular uh, thing here in the United States, but it does happen quite frequently in Europe. I've got uh, family members from England, and they say it happens all the time. And if you remember... Madeline McCann, her parents did the same thing in Portugal. Terrible case. And with with terrible results, right? Yep, terrible and, results. A little girl dead. Yeah, right? And they still haven't found the culprit. Nope. I think this is probably, I, I, I hate to sound, uh, I don't want to say elitist, but I, I hate to sound um, like I'm bashing the upper crust. But it seems to be something that the more affluent, extremely affluent people do. And I'm not quite sure why. But, but it's you know not something no, but David, normally I, here. David, let me insert in that. That's what I found especially weird. Because this is a husband and wife who work in media. Uh, they, I don't know what they make, but you know, I suspect the producer of a uh, big, big time show at ABC makes some decent yeah. money. His wife works at the Washington Post, probably makes decent money, um, and they're they're staying at an exclusive members only hotel. Didn't even know there was such a thing, but there is, uh, and they're down the down the road, uh, fifteen minutes walk away at a steakhouse. So they've got some dollars. I, I just thought if you've got that kind of money. And you're staying in exclusive. I mean, Tina and I have occasionally we stayed uh, one time at the uh, Four Seasons in uh, in Seattle, 
very fancy hotel, and I got a kick out of reading. There's a book in the room, and in the back it lists all the services. If you need a stenographer, the hotel can get you one. If you need a babysitter, they can get you one. If you want a personal trainer, you can get one. I mean, you just pick up the phone and call downstairs and say, we need a babysitter. And I was thinking, if you've got that kind of dough, you couldn't just call the front desk and say, hey, look, we need a babysitter for a few hours. We're going out to dinner and, and, and hire a babysitter. But, but no, it's like we're going to use technology and mom's going to be 15 minutes away, except she ended up a lot farther away at the hospital with her husband who, you know, sad to say, died. Uh, but her two little girls are alone in a hotel room. Lars, Lars, what you, you failed to mention is that the people that take advantage of those programs typically have money and they can, and they can afford it. Right, And I think what's happened here is these people obviously couldn't, and they thought they could save a couple of times. I'm not, I, you know, I have no idea. It's all speculation. But I'll tell you what, uh, it's, it's a hell of a lot more common in Europe than it is in the United but, States. But and maybe when you say in Europe, Europe, you mean in Great Britain, a husband and wife will go you know, check into a hotel, park, park a couple of very young kids, two-year-old and five-month-old, in a hotel room and say, okay, we're going down the street to a, uh, to a restaurant. And the kids will be just fine as long as we can get back there in 15 or 20 minutes. That's precisely what Madeline McCann's parents did. Yeah, you are and right about it. Mean, I've, I've watched a couple of documentaries on that. That is such a tragic case. It's crazy. It's, it, it's crazy. Well, I, I think there's a reason uh, that in most states the law, or at least the guidelines are, until a kid reaches the age of 12, you don't leave a child alone in a house for any length of time. And what, what Tina and I have always thought about is, well, you know, if we're just going to run a quick errand, the problem is the quick errand can turn into a fender bender uh, or can turn yeah, into a, a right. fatal car accident. And then you've got a child at home with no adult to take care of them. It just seems, it seemed very strange. And especially when you said you don't want to beat up on the upper crust, I would because if you were talking about people who make average wages, You'd say, well, they decided to go cheap on by not getting a babysitter. In this case, right. it seems like the babysitter probably would have cost a whole lot less than the steak dinner or probably the stay in the <laughs> exclusive hotel. David, thanks for the call. Glad to have you with me. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com on the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that... Whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network and always glad to get your calls from all over the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. We, prov we promise to deliver honestly provocative talk radio on a daily basis, and I hope that we do. I hope you get a chance to call. Send me an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find the daily question, brand new question every day, at Lars Larson Show. Should the Oregon Democrat Party return the half million dollars it got from the FTX crypto fraud 
I would answer yes to that. Uh, the Democrats so far are saying, we're not giving the money back. We don't care if it got stolen from pension funds or anything else. We're not giving the money back. Shame on Tina Kotek and shame on Kate Brown. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, I want to talk about CO2. Now, we talk about CO2 from time to time on this program. But here's the crazy thing. As Todd Myers of the Washington Policy Center has pointed out so many times, Washington State has a governor who is happy to add 46 cents to the cost of your gasoline and diesel, ostensibly to save the planet from global warming. He's also happy to put out all kinds of goals that he never actually accomplishes by saying we're going to reduce CO2 by this much or that much or the other much. And, and then they don't do it. In fact, in some cases, they work, the, they, they go backwards. Uh, they, they actually produce more of the stuff they're supposed to produce less of. Todd, did I get most of that right? You did. So why, what is Jay Inslee pushing these days, you know, with more goals where he never actually hits the goalpost? Well, what's, what I think is remarkable is, is that they have said that, that even though they keep missing their targets, that their policies are working. So there are two things that they're doing. One, they're, as you pointed out, they're adding a big tax on carbon dioxide, which if we use the Department of Ecology's estimates would add to about an average of 46 cents a gallon tax increase this year. But they're using that money to spend on more um, programs that they claim will reduce CO2 emissions. But these are virtually identical to the programs that they have been spending money on and have been failing. So we've been spending a lot of money and not getting any results. And again, I know that people are, are skeptical about the impacts of climate change. But if you, even if you believe that climate change is, is an existential crisis like the governor does or just a, a, a crisis, you should be very upset that Washington state has spent so much money and done so little for the environment. And that, I think, is the, is the big problem is that their policies consistently have failed, um, but they keep doing more of the same. I mean, because when I take a look at what's been written by, say, Mark Albright at the University of Washington's Atmospheric Sciences Lab, and we talk no. to uh, global warming debunkers all the time, and they say, look, water vapor is a bigger issue than CO2. And, uh, you know, and CO2 is not the driver. CO2 is the consequence of warming. If there's indeed warming that's going on, we may in fact be in some cooling. And I've seen at least a few scientists who are saying, hey, maybe we're going into cooling instead of warming. And now we need all that CO2. The bottom line is even the, the climate scientists don't believe necessarily that it's CO2. But if, if, like you said, if you care about CO2 and you say it's responsible to reduce the amount of CO2 that we put in the atmosphere, even though it's plant food, um, then, uh, then, okay, that's your goal. But when you reported that Washington State CO2 emissions not only have not decreased, they've actually increased, and all you get is Jay Inslee saying, well, I'm going to set some new goals uh, to, 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 to replace the goals that we haven't managed to meet already. Uh, th this just seems lunatic, and it's more of a PR move by Jay Inslee than, than anything, any kind of practical uh, uh, policy for the state. That's exactly right. And, and look, I am not a scientist, so I know other I will let scientists fight about the impact of CO2. What I want to know is, are our policies even working? And so I think for those, for your listeners who aren't scientists, 
who want to say, okay, you know, let's set it, let's set the issue of CO2, you know, how significant CO2 is aside. Are the policies even working? And the answer is, according to Governor Inslee's own data and his own administration, the answer is no. And here is a particularly, here's a fact that I think will be particularly galling to Governor Inslee, which is that Washington's per capita emissions, so one of the things that they say is, well, our emissions have gone up, but per capita emissions have gone down because population has increased. But what's interesting is per capita emissions have also gone up, and now Florida has a lower per capita emissions than Washington state. So here is Washington state bragging about that it is a leader on climate policy, and yet Florida is doing a better job of reducing emissions even per capita than Washington state, which I think is very funny. And by the way, in Florida, do you have any idea what it is that's bringing about that reduction? Because this is the one that just floors me when I see people saying, well, you know, we're going to reduce emissions, but we don't want you to use natural gas. And I said, isn't natural gas been one of the things that's actually reduced emissions the most, especially when industry says we're going to go from fuel oil to natural gas? Uh, and you say, OK, that that'll cut that'll cut CO2 emissions a lot. And then when the greenies come along and say, no, no, you can't use natural gas. You have to use something else. And you say, well, what is this something else? We don't know, but you got to figure it out. Do you know what it's what what's doing the you know, the good stuff in Florida? I don't. And, and as you point out, a lot of what has uh, been a CO2 that has been reduced in other parts of the country is moving from coal generation to natural gas. I don't know if that's the case in Florida, but whether it is or not, you know, Washington state has very clean electricity because of hydro. So whatever they're doing isn't simply, you know, moving from coal to natural gas because their their per capita emissions would probably still be higher, even though they would reduce. Florida is not only reducing faster overall emissions, but they're reducing per capita. So whatever they're doing, they're doing it better. I don't know what their policies are. But when I noticed that Florida per capita emissions were better than Washington's, even as Washington, you know, agency staff brag about what a good job we're doing, I just think that's very funny that Ron DeSantis is doing better than Jay Inslee. Well, and it's not that Florida's population is getting smaller, if anything, is getting bigger. But you point out that in seven years, the state of Washington is supposed to have CO2 50 percent below 2019 levels, except they set that goal. And you point out that since 2012, every year for the last decade, CO2 emissions have gone up while the state is promising to bring them 50 percent below 2019 in seven years. I mean, they're never going to make that goal, are they? It's, I think it's very unlikely. Now, if they just stick to their guns, they could do it, but it will be extremely expensive. Um, so that's the trade-off. They might be able to do it, but it will be a very high cost. Um, but the other thing is, is that that 50% goal, what you will hear them say is that it's science-based. It is not. It is arbitrary. Saying that you're going to reduce, it's actually 45%. Saying you're going to reduce 45%, which is magically divisible by five, by the end of a decade, 2030, Round numbers are not scientific numbers. There is a fiction that this is based in science. It is not. It is a political goal. It is a political target that is not based in science. Absolutely right. That's Todd Myers with the Washington Policy Center. Todd, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Glad to have you with me on this Wednesday. Coming up in a moment, we got to talk about public education. And are you willing to submit your kids to diversity instead of education based on merit? 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your phone calls here in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer and you disagree with my point of view, you are more than welcome to call the show. Because now for more than a quarter century, we've always put the naysayer to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you care to, vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find a brand new question every day at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, at LarsLarson.com on the web. And uh, glad to have you do that as well. I want to talk about education. And I realize we talk about education a lot on this show. And what is the reason for that? Well, number one, I think it is one of the most important things that adults in any society do for children. And that is prepare them with at least the basic knowledge and abilities to be able to navigate the world. That's number one. Number two, of course, we spend an incredible amount of money. In America, we spend more money on K through 12 public education. I'm not talking about community college or universities. We spend more money on public education, K through 12, than every other country on earth. And that is not an exaggeration. Now, I know you'll constantly hear people saying, without actually knowing what the numbers are, why we need to do a better job with education. We should spend more money on it. Well, the answer is that money does not necessarily produce great results. The closest country that comes to us in K-12 through public education funding is Sweden, and they spend considerably less per child per year than the United States does. But there are some huge changes coming, and you ought to be aware of them. And if you say, well, I don't have kids in public schools, so why would it matter to me? Well, the answer is it should matter to you because even if you don't have kids in school, even if you don't care that your tax dollars are either being used well or badly on education, you should care because if you live in a society in which people are capable of having the kind of education that allows them to be successful, that will be a good society. In other words, if people come out of even public school, and uh, I always went to public school. Tina went to public school. Um, if, if you come out of public school with the basics to be able to go and work a job, be a contributor in society, and understand how to navigate around, maybe a course in the Constitution would be handy, uh, that that is going to be of value to you. If you live in a society that is largely uneducated because uh, you know 20% to 30% of kids drop out of public schools, um, that's not going to be a good society because what's going to happen is the people who get into that society don't have the ability to make it on their own are going to look for another way to get by in life. And oftentimes that's going to be an illicit way, maybe an illegal way, maybe a criminal way. So consider the changes that they're pushing right now. There is a push not just for diversity in education. Uh, they'll say, they're saying, well, we have to make sure that we teach critical race theory. We have to make sure that we indoctrinate kids about different kinds of sexuality. We have to tell kids about the ability to change your gender on a whim. All of that stuff works against it. But there's an even bigger change that is even more disturbing. In many parts of the country, not all, public schools, some of them, are set aside and you get in based on merit. That is, you take a test. I'm not talking about universities. I'm not talking about private schools. I'm talking about public schools in some of America's biggest cities. And it has always worked that way. And you know who's work, who it's worked out exceptionally well for? For the kids from the blue-collar families 
whose parents don't have the money to put them in a fancy private school that has a great reputation, all that. These are parents who are just ordinary working people in America who want their kids to do well. And when they coach their kids to say, you need to study hard, we may even be able to spare a little bit of money for a tutor. So you're particularly good at math or writing or science or anything else and get you into that elite public school where you get in not because of what you got in your wallet or your purse you get in because of what your kid has in his or her head it's based on merit except that now real clear investigations did a great story on this vince bielski who's been on the show before he says there is a gamble being played out in urban public education so he's talking about the biggest cities in america the end of a screened admissions system in selective schools and why what they want to do is say it doesn't matter how much you've been able to study, how hard you work at your academics. We're going to let people in based on skin color. We're going to let people based in on ethnicity. We're going to let people based on gender students. We're going to decide who gets in, not by which student is the best and might benefit the most, from this education. Now, I know that some of you will assume, well, those will be the kids from the rich families. As I told you, the practical side of this is that in many public schools, the bigger ones in the bigger cities, kids get into those special elite public schools where it doesn't matter how much money mom and dad have, whether or not they can put money in the endowment. What matters is whether or not Johnny and Janie actually know math or can write or know some science. Now, a lot of parents of higher achievers are not buying into the theory that all students will benefit when poor performers are placed into selective schools. In fact, if anything, I made this comparison. No matter which sport you want to pick up, uh, I used to do some skiing. I don't do much skiing anymore. But imagine if you took an idiot like me who's at best a lower-level intermediate skier. Not great. You say, well, Lars will do better if we throw him in with some of these expert skiers, you know, because then he'll pick up some of what they're doing. That may be the case, or it may be that Lars is going to end up frustrated all day long and twice on Sunday. But they're literally pushing the idea. For example, advocates say students learn best in mix, uh, mixed ability classrooms, but in fact, nobody really learned much from their reading in my son's class, and that's terrible. That was the reaction of one parent. So in other words, you take the bad reader, and the excellent reader and the average reader, and you put them all in the classroom on the theory that maybe mixing all those kids into the same pot is going to let some of the poor students, you know, ones that don't study as hard, don't know how to do something as well, mix them in with the better performing kids, and everybody will do better. I can tell you that my experience in public schools and in the limited amount of college that I took is that if you put a kid into an environment where there are a bunch of kids that perform really, really well, and you aren't anywhere near even keeping up with them, that is going to be discouraging. It's going to be depressing. It'll probably lead to more kids uh, simply leaving, dropping out, and that's happening far too often. And in New York City especially, the New York City's public schools lost about 100,000 students during the pandemic because parents looked at what was being offered to their kids and said, hold on a second, you're deciding that my kids are going to fail. I'm going to pull my kids out of the public school. Nationwide, schools in 39 states have adopted so-called integration strategies, including preferential admissions for people who are both economically poor 
and people who are minority students. And you say, well, well, that's being fair to them. How about just deciding based on who's the best student? I mean, the truth is that a lot of the colleges are finding out that some of the best students are the kids coming from Asian families. And you say, but those are people of color. And many times their parents are not well-heeled. They don't make a lot of money. But their kids are told, study hard and you will achieve through merit. And now the public schools are saying, we're going to leave merit in the rearview mirror. We're just going to mix kids together. And it doesn't matter how good a student you are. I think that makes zero sense. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. Of course, one of the things we've been keeping an eye on is the fight on Capitol Hill about who's going to be the House Speaker in the new Republican-majority House of Representatives. And Kevin McCarthy now has failed on six different ballots. He's been nominated six times. They voted six times. He lost six times. Uh, I'll point out to my friend Peter Roth, who we may disagree on this. I don't know. Every once in a while we do. But Peter's a Newsweek contributing editor. You know, Peter, if he loses 15 more votes... He gets into Susan Lucci territory. You remember the gal who kept getting nominated for Emmy, mm-hmm. Emmy Award and never actually won? Well, she did finally win one. But in this case, you know, when people say, look, McCarthy needs to either cut a deal with the conservatives, who I think have raised some important points that he needs to consider uh, and get them on his side, or step to the sidelines and let somebody else be speaker. Tell me if I'm wrong, and, and if so, how, much, how wrong am I? Well, you're not wrong. But you're not right. What I see going on here is that the the rump group of Republicans who are voting in block now for someone other than McCarthy. Yesterday it was Jim Jordan. Today it was Byron Donalds, the black Republican from from Southwest Florida. You know, tomorrow it could be Lauren Boebert. Um, their issues with McCarthy are personal. They're not policy-driven. They may say, for all appearances, that this is a policy fight. This is about driving the conservative agenda. But I think that this is about a personal dislike for Mr. McCarthy, who um, is not everyone's cup of tea and has a reputation for not exactly being trustworthy. Okay, I'd I'd accept that. But... but personal always does does get involved in the political i mean you know that there there are a whole bunch of policies we watch the current president reject simply because they had trump's name on them even though eventually in some cases joe biden has gone right back to those policies but but he never wanted to do it and why didn't he want to do it because it didn't make sense no because because he hates donald trump with with all the grifters running around on the on the conservative side now and and you get emails from them all day long and i get emails from them all day long and they're all talking about how they're the true conservatives and please send me thirty dollars or please (laughs) send me 125 dollars to help me keep up my important fight that it's important to distinguish between the real policy issues and the and the and the personal animosities that are that are going on here because one presumes that another speaker, another candidate for speaker, um, who could get 218 votes would have a, a reasonably easy time running the House. I don't think that's true. I think what we're seeing here is we have a Republican majority, but the Democrats really have the power. 
and they're sitting back right now, and one of the potential outcomes is that Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Pelosi will get together and they will find 20 votes, 20 Democrats who could vote for McCarthy to be speaker without losing their seats, and then they own McCarthy for the next two years. Now, how do the Republicans, how do the real conservatives prevent that from happening? Uh, well, one one way might just have to be that the real conservatives have to join up with um, the dissidents and the moderates in the Republican conference and give McCarthy the 218 votes that he needs without any Democratic support. Um, if Mr. McCarthy, Mr. McCarthy, I think, will continue to run until the pressure on he's either so great on him to get out that he has to go, and I mean from Congress, or the pressure on the dissidents is so great from the other members of the conference that we need to get down to the people's business that one side or the other caves. They both have have dug themselves in. It's trench um it's trench warfare like in World War One. That McCarthy's in, in, in one trench and the dissidents are in another trench a quarter of a mile away and there's a no man's land in between. And they just shoot at each uh, other till the till, And they just shoot at each other and, and and eventually somebody will climb out of the trench and they'll run and and you know, maybe they'll okay. make it, maybe they won't. But Peter, but let me ask you this. Yeah. When I see when I see this guy Perry from the Freedom Caucus who said, Look, we mm-hmm. negotiated with McCarthy for months. We sat down with him and said, here's what we want. Here are the things we want. And they all sound pretty reasonable. Let's vote on the border. Let's yes. vote on term limits. Let's vote on uh, on on uh, two-thirds majority to pass earmarks. I'd love to see that. And I think most Americans would say, if you really have an yeah. earmark that's worth it, we'll fund it, but it needs really big support. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't get it, too bad. We're not spending the money. We're, we're, we've already spent ourselves into a hole. Well, Those all sound yeah, very, very... And, certain and, and a lot of committees. a lot of those laws were adopted. You know, a lot of those positions were accepted, not the vote on term limits. And there hasn't been a commitment to a balanced budget. But the rules that were proposed for the House included cut as you go rather than paying as you go, which is where it is under Pelosi. Um, it included um, budget cutting measures. It included the three fifths supermajority to pass a marginal tax increase. Um, it didn't discuss the debt limit, which is a which is a big issue for some people, largely because it's it's really the one place where people like you and I who are concerned about spending have managed to get some leverage over the president, right? Uh, and and force real cuts. John Boehner forced real cuts in spending in exchange for the agreement to raise the debt ceiling back under President Obama. So those are all good things. Those should all be done. And the fact that we're having this conversation is useful and helpful for conservatives. But I see a disconnect between the conversation and what's going on on Capitol Hill right now, because the the people who are pretending to have the conversation um, aren't really talking about what the problem is. And the problem is, is these 20 members and there there could be another 10 to 20 who at this point are voting with McCarthy really don't want him as 
Well, and if they, yeah, Peter, if they, if I take, and I think you're probably right. They don't trust him. Well, that's the same. And then, then you, how do you get a deal with somebody you can't trust? If you're buying a house or a car or taking a job and you say, yeah, they've, they've offered me the sun and the moon and the stars, but I don't trust that they're actually telling the truth. If you've got somebody like that, what kind of leader can he possibly end up being? And, and, and that's where I, I think the idea of stepping out on faith comes in. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are, other people who could occupy the speakership, so that there could be a speaker. You know, you could you could find some um, senior Republican legislature legislator who isn't demented to to be a caretaker speaker for two years while they work everything out, or somebody who was the speaker of the House back home who knows how to how to use power and how to run a chamber. Um, or you could go to Scalise, or you could go to Jim Jordan, or you could go to some of the other um, guys who are generally regarded as stand-up, honest, truthful conservatives. Yeah, but but this is that, the only that, time, in a lot of ways, like when there's an election, the only time you can actually get somebody from something from somebody who's running for office is say, I'm not voting for you unless you back this or, or oppose that. And this is the only time you have that kind of leverage. So when people say, oh, tell these... 20, you know, uh, uh, rump mm-hmm. uh, members of the of the GOP, just knock it off, just vote for McCarthy and take him. It's the only time you've got any real leverage, and now you're asking them to give it up. Peter Roth is a contributing editor at Newsweek, and Peter, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Glad to get your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Coming up in a moment on the Radio Northwest Network, I want to talk about Seattle's mayor and the fact that he says he doesn't have the tools to get the job done. I think that's ridiculous, and you might as well. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. That's right, they do, and they always have for a quarter of a century. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network, providing honestly provocative talk for the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the last quarter of a century. And glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to talk about Bruce Harrell for just a moment. Now, we've asked for an interview with the mayor of Seattle any number of times. Haven't got it yet, not exactly holding my breath, expecting it. But he did an interview with a Como reporter, and I want to share part of that with you in just a moment, because this shows, I hate to say this, I, I had high hopes for Mayor Bruce Harrell, but I don't think he's up to the task. And I'll tell you why, and I'll give you the specifics in just a moment. First, this segment of the show is brought to you by Valhalla Tea, a perfect gift and it helps veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaT.com. That's ValhallaT.com. Our Twitter poll today has specifically to do with Oregon. And let me get to Bruce Harrell in just a moment. But the question is, should the Oregon Democrat Party return the half million dollars cash it got from the FTX crypto fraud? And I'd remind you that an awful lot of uh, people around the country. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the guy who was running this little scam, he's now criminally accused, and if he's convicted, he may well go to prison for his entire life. His crimes are that bad under the federal sentencing guidelines. Now, he's pleaded not guilty, so he's got a right to his day in court, but there's no debating that literally millions of people have lost a couple of billion dollars in this FTX crypto fraud. So whether Sam, Bank- Sam Bankman-Fried beats the charges or not, It doesn't matter. What does matter is that some people, 
and I'm not one of them, so I don't have a direct dog in the fight in case you're wondering, Lars, did you lose money on FTX? If I did, I would disclose it to you. I'm not involved in FTX crypto at all, nor in any of its competitors. But people lost money. It's now in the hands of a bankruptcy receiver. So half a million dollars went from FTX to the Democrat Party of Oregon Political Action Committee. An awful lot of other Democrats around the country have sent the money back. Kate Brown and Tina Kotek, Tina Kotek is the governor-elect of Oregon, have refused to return that money. And if you say, well, what difference will it make if it's returned? There are people out there who lost money in this fraud. They had promises made to them. We're not going to mess with your money. We're not going to loan it to somebody else. That's exactly what was done with it. Uh, there were people playing games of their money that they had promised in writing not to do. So if the money gets sent back, and it should be from the Democrat Party, Tina Kotek and Kate Brown should could make that happen, have chosen not to make that happen, should they return it? It turns out, we found out this week from the Taxpayers Association of Oregon, that some of the money that got ripped off came from the pension plans of teachers in places like Illinois, in places like Canada, those teacher pension funds had apparently, unbeknownst to them, invested in other, you know, they have to invest pension money so it makes money so that when the pensions get paid out, you have enough money to pay them out. This came from public employees. Now, you would think if there's anybody that Tina Kotek and Kate Brown would be loyal to, it would be union members, union teachers, and public employees. So should they send the money back? I would say yes. You can answer any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now let me get to Bruce Harrell, the mayor of Seattle, who, as I've said, we've asked for interviews. We've never been able to get one. But Bruce Harrell was questioned by a relatively new reporter at Como Television. Take a listen to the question that's posed to Bruce Harrell. And then I'll let you hear the answer as well. Listen to the question first. The eye test, though, is one thing. As you know, the data is another. And, and according to the city's own data, it shows that crime is up in, in many sectors, in particular homicides, motor vehicle theft, property crime. December numbers are not in, but it was trending in the wrong direction. Shootings are up 23%. That's the highest in a decade in the city of Seattle. So what do you account for for that? Now, the interesting question because he's saying to Bruce Harrell, who says, I think we're on the right track right now. No, Seattle's not on the right, right track any more than Portland is on the right track. Violent crime is going up, and it's being ignored at almost every level. Police defunded, prosecutors not doing their jobs in many cases, criminals being released from prison by a couple of idiot governors. And what kind of answer does Bruce Harrell have to a perfectly reasonable question saying crime is going up, how can you say the city is on the right track? Listen to the answer. Yes, I think you have old data, number one. It's, number it's the new data. The data also has to be looked in the context of what's, hap what's happening in this country, in this state, and even in this city. And so the fact is, is we have a pro proliferation of guns in the wrong hands. Uh, we don't have the policies in place federally or statewide to really address it to the level now, I would like to address it. Now, this is what's crazy about this. He says, oh, it's your old data. Except the data is from November of last year. The December data isn't even in yet. That's point number one. Point number two, when he says, well, you know, it's it, basically it's happening everywhere else in America, so it's got to happen here. 
There are a lot of cities that have done a much better job of law enforcement and prosecution of criminals than Seattle and Portland have done. And then he says, we don't, we've got all these guns. Folks, I'm going to repeat this number over and over again. 92% of violent crimes are not committed with guns. 8% are. If you could erase guns from American society, God forbid, but if you could, it would take care of 8% of the crimes, the violent crimes. The other 92% of violent crimes don't have anything to do with guns. But for people like Bruce Harrell, guns is an easy excuse. And as far as that goes, you've already got laws on the books to go after the criminals who use guns in committing their violent crimes, and you're choosing not to do it. Shame on you, Mayor Bruce Harrell. But we're going to still keep asking for an interview. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.